0: The first church that I ever attended that was not a Catholic church was a place that isn't around anymore called Hillside Bible Church, and our family attended there when I was in first and second grade, and I carry with me, even to this day, two very distinct memories of that church. The first is that in between services, they had all-you-can-eat donuts, and uh, (laughs) these donuts were spectacular, and I ate all of them that I could. Uh, I wish I could describe to you the memory of these donuts, but I could never do them justice. Uh, The second thing that I remember very vividly from this this church was my first grade Sunday school teacher, who was a woman who was probably in her 60s. Her name was Mrs. Hawkins, and I loved her. Uh, I didn't love her because she was a great teacher. I don't remember any of her teachings. I don't remember her being fun. I don't remember her being funny. But I loved her because I knew, I I could tell that she loved me. And when I graduated from first grade, uh, I was very sad to move on. I knew I would lose her as my teacher. And she came up to me and she pulled me aside and she gave me my very first Bible, which is this one right here. And, And she thanked me for being in her class. And she wrote in it, to Paul Cronenwet, with love, from Mrs. Hawkins. And I saved the Bible. I've I've treasured this Bible all of my life. I would never get rid of it. But even though I treasured the Bible, what's interesting is as I look back on on my early years uh, through high school, I never read it, at least hardly ever. And it was almost as if while I loved this book as a concept, uh, in reality what I really found the Bible to be was kind of intimidating and overwhelming. And I carried that feeling with me for a good part of my life. I know that I'm not alone in that. Uh, The Bible is considered by many to be a very daunting book, uh, particularly the Old Testament. And part of the reason that that is, is the Bible is a very big book. It's heavy. Uh, It's full of theology and you have discussions of ancient cultures and treaties and laws that sometimes don't make a lot of sense to us today. Uh, In the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you have prophets and you've got priests and you've got kings and sometimes people are killing animals and the language is really confusing and some of these things are not easy to understand this morning, what I want to think about is that the Bible, the pieces of the Bible, begin to make a lot more sense when we recognize one thing that is true about the Bible, and that is that the Bible is a story. And once you understand the framework of the story, the pieces that seem so confusing can sometimes begin to fall together. Like any other story, the Bible has a setting, It has characters, it has a plot, it has a conflict, and it has a resolution. And so what the Bible is, is it is a true story of extraordinary love. It's a story of a dreadful betrayal. It's a story of a daring plan, an unthinkable sacrifice, and a living hope a hope that we can carry with us even to this day. And so for the next two weeks, what I want to try to do is I want to try to walk you through an overview, a big picture of the story, the sweeping story of the Bible. Uh, It's a story that has been called the greatest story ever told. And I hope that as uh, as we go through this, you'll get a bit of a sense uh, of that. And so this morning is not going to be a normal message. Uh, It's going to be a bit different. I'm going to try to give you the background of the story of the Old Testament. I'm going to try to go through the entire Old Testament in about 30 minutes or 25 minutes and give you a sense for the setting and the plot and the characters. And uh, I'm going to skip some details. I'm going to move really quickly. Somebody asked me this morning, how can I pray for you today? And I said, you can pray for energy And they said, for you? And I said, no, for them. Okay, you're going to need your energy this morning. But we're going to dive right in. The first book of the Bible is a book that's called Genesis. Uh, The meaning of the word Genesis means beginnings. And the Bible begins with an extraordinary act of love. Uh, We're introduced to God who creates the heavens and the earth. And he speaks. And out of the dark void, atom and matter and molecules are formed. And not only are they formed, but we're told that they obey God's voice. And he says, let there be light and land and water and plants and stars. He says, let there be the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night and fish and birds and living creatures of all kinds. And so God makes a world out of stone and dirt and trees and grass and rock and wildlife. And after creating each category, God pauses and he looks and he says, it is good. But all of his creation is for a purpose. He's not done yet. He has created a home for the pinnacle of all creation, and that is mankind. And with mankind, instead of just speaking, he tenderly reaches into the ground, into the dust. He forms man, and the Bible says that God puts man in front of his face and breathes life right into his nostrils. And then just as tenderly he creates woman. And God gives humanity four great gifts First of all, they're created in his image. We bear God's image. We're stamped with his image. And we carry that with us into all of life to reflect him. Uh, God gives us marriage, the most intimate relationship of any other human relationships. Uh, God gives us families. He tells us to be fruitful and multiply. And so we enjoy having parents and being parents. And finally, he gives us work. We get to be a part of shaping the world around us, and this was to be our home. God makes a planet, a perfect planet, invites us to live there, and we are meant to delight in God, delight in his creation. All things outside of us were to be good, and all things inside of us were to be good, and God finishes this, and he looks around again, and this time he says, it is very good. And this is the world that we were made for. Now, within the garden, Eden, there are two trees. The first tree is called the tree of life. And the fruit of the tree of life imparts for a person eternal life. God says, if you eat of this tree, you will live forever. There's a second tree in the garden that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat from this tree, you will Die. Now, there's nothing special about the second tree. It's just regular fruit. But what God has done is he's given Adam and Eve a choice. They have the opportunity not to trust God. They're, they're, ro- they're not robots. And that provides the context for the dreadful betrayal. And the rest of the Old Testament is the dreadful betrayal. Uh, Satan, we're told, the ancient enemy of God, tempts Eve through her. Adam is tempted as well, not not through her directly, but she gives the fruit to him as well. And with the same temptation that he tempts all of us with, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. The question of whether or not God is really good and can he be trusted. Uh, They eat the fruit. Their eyes are open, we're told. They have knowledge of evil, They realize that they are naked and they are ashamed, and sin has entered the world more devastating than the worst of cancer. And God comes and he confronts Adam, and all of a sudden the finger pointing begins. Adam blames Eve, and he blames God. Eve blames Satan. And in the end, God banishes mankind from the Garden of Eden. Now, this was a mercy and protection from God. Because God knew that if Adam and Eve in their sinful state ate from the tree of life, they would would live forever that way. There would be no hope. So he sends them away. An angel with a flaming sword guards the garden so they can't come back. And God creates some garments out of animals to send them away to clothe their shame. This was the first death in the Bible. These animals that God killed for the sake of Adam and Eve. A paradise has been lost, time goes on, the cancer continues to spread, and there is more betrayal and more sorrow. Uh, Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. The older is jealous and angry and enraged at the younger and kills him. And from there, the world descends into more and more violence and evil. Uh, God looks upon the world, and the Bible tells us that he is grieved. Uh, He wishes that he has never made mankind and so out of love for future generations so they don't have to experience the evil in the world at the time, God decides to start all over again and he does it beginning with a man named Noah. Uh, We're told in the Bible that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord and God blesses Noah with righteousness. He tells Noah that he's going to flood the earth, begin all over again and instructs Noah to build an ark, which he does. He tells Noah that all who come with you in this ark will be rescued. And so Noah's family and two of every animal uh, comes into the ark. The earth is destroyed, and you're probably familiar with the story. Eventually, Noah uh, finds land. He exits the ark, and at that point, God makes a covenant with Noah. A covenant is a promise that cannot be broken. God will not break a covenant. And his promise is that he will never flood the earth again. Uh, Mankind gets a brand new start. And what you would think is that because they have a new start, now everything would be great. All the bad people, all the evil people have been killed and now the good people are going to start things over again. But in a very sad bit of foreshadowing, the story of Noah ends with Noah immediately after he receives the covenant from God, planting a vineyard, and that scene closes with Noah drunk and naked in front of his entire family. A generation's pass; the nations begin to reform, but the people have not changed. And swelled with pride in their technology and advancements, all the people gather together, and in defiance, they build a tower called Babel to try to reach God, as if to say to God, we are in charge, we can get to you. It was like they extended the middle finger to God. And so God disperses them, and he confuses their languages. And then God does something amazing. God does something that only God would think of and do. Uh, Out of this lost culture, God chooses a man to bless, and that man's name was Abram. His name later was changed to Abraham, so we'll call him that. A God calls Abraham out of his nation, Babylon, to form a new nation. And he makes a covenant with Abraham, a promise God says that he will never break. And one night he brings Abraham out under the stars and he says to Abraham, I want you to try to count all of these stars. And Abraham tries, but he can't. And God said, that is how your offspring will be. Abraham, look around you. I'm going to give you all of this land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And every single person who will ever live, including us here today, will be blessed by you. And and the rest of the Bible is God keeping that promise to Abraham. Uh, Abraham, we're told, believes that God will do that. And God gives Abraham a son in his old age. It's a miracle. Uh, That son's name is Isaac, and Isaac is precious to Abraham. Uh, Abraham dies. Isaac grows up. And Isaac is not a great parent. Isaac has some problems. Uh, He has a son whose name is Jacob, and Jacob is a very deceitful man. In fact, that's the meaning of his name. But God confronts Jacob physically. He wrestles him down to the ground, and he changes his name. And it reflects the change that actually happened inside of Jacob. He's no longer called Jacob. God renames him Israel. And Israel goes on to have 12 sons of his own. Uh, Israel's youngest son was a man whose name was Joseph, and the other 11 brothers were very jealous of Joseph because Israel was a bad parent too. He treated Joseph better than he treated all of the other brothers. Uh, Unthinkably, the brothers sell Joseph into slavery to get rid of him, and yet through God's providence, Joseph rises to become the second in command just under the Pharaoh in Egypt And as all of that is happening in Joseph's life, back with his family, his fathers and brothers and all of their family are facing death because of a great famine. And so in the providence of God, his family travels to Egypt to try to find food and guess who they end up dealing with? Joseph. And in one of the most touching stories of grace in all the Old Testament, Joseph forgives his family and he rescues his family and they come to live honored in Egypt now generations and generations go by and the family of Israel grows to be the size of an actual nation right Joseph and his brothers and Israel everyone dies a new pharaoh begins uh, his reign and he begins to get nervous that because there's this great number of people who are living in Egypt who are not Egyptians. It's possible they could take over someday. So he turns them into slaves. And God's people now are exploited and oppressed and mistreated by the Egyptians. Their life is absolutely horrible. And they begin to cry out to God to do something. And I just have to read this part for you. I I love this. the, The way that this is written in the Bible. It says in the book of Exodus, right at the start, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. Now, God could have helped his people in any way that he wanted to at this point. He could have just caused the government to transition somehow or done something subtle. But instead of that, what God decides to do is to unleash his power. He raises up a man named Moses who was a very insecure man who happened to be a former murderer. And he uses this man Moses to rescue his people from slavery. And Moses goes to the Pharaoh and he demands that the people be set free. And Pharaoh refuses continually. And so you have the plagues of God. God turns the water of Egypt to blood. He sends mobs of frogs. He turns the dust of Egypt into lice. There are swarms of flies and thunder and hail and fire and locusts and darkness. And amazingly, all of these plagues are happening to the Egyptians. But God's people, Israel, are fine. And for the final flag, plague, excuse me, the final plague... God sends a destroyer to kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian. And it's an incredibly important night. It's remembered as the Passover when God rescues the children of Israel. God instructs the Israelites to take a perfect lamb and that it must be sacrificed on behalf, one must be sacrificed on behalf of every family And they take the blood of this lamb, they spread it over them on the doorpost, and it is shed for them that they might live. And they do. And the exodus begins. And in triumph and power, all of God's people, now more than two million people, march out of Egypt towards their new home that God promised to Abraham. Uh, They're broken down into tribes that are based on the names of those 12 children of Israel. And God leads them with a cloud by day. They follow the cloud. And at night, he leads them with a pillar of fire. And when they come into trouble at the Red Sea, God parts it. They walk through on dry land. Pharaoh's army who chases them is washed away. God feeds them manna, this bread from heaven, as they go along. And he makes it so that their clothes never wear out. And finally, this new nation comes to Mount Sinai. And it's there that, once again, they experience the presence of God incredibly. Uh, God descends on the mountain in a great cloud with fire and thunder and smoke. And Moses goes to the top of the mountain to meet with God because all of the people are afraid to. And Moses is up there for the few days and God gives him the Ten Commandments. Now the Ten Commandments are a summary of 613 commandments that God actually gives the children of Israel in uh, what's called the law, the Old Testament law. Uh, God gave these things to the people for their good so that the problems that had happened previously would, would be able to be a- addressed. The first four laws of the Ten Commandments deal primary, primarily with the people and God. The last six deal with the people and each other. And what the Ten Commandments are meant to show is first of all what God's standards are for life and second of all that when we hold our lives to those standards we don't meet them. And God also spells out to the people what will happen to them if they follow him and obey him. And what will happen to them if they don't follow him and disobey him. And, and you would think that after all of this, things would be great between the people and God. I mean, he's just rescued them from their slavery, and they've seen his power in amazing and dazzling ways. He parted the Red Sea, the plagues. Now he's a a smoke on a mountain with fire. But it didn't work out that way because the Old Testament is a story of betrayal. And Moses comes down from the mountain, we're told. He finds them worshiping a golden calf. Uh, He deals with that. They pack up, they leave for the new land, and as they're going, the people are constantly grumbling against God. And finally, they reach the end of, they they reach the promised land. They're just on the edge of it. Uh, This home that God has given them, and they send a few spies to check it out and see how it is, and on the other side, there's some people who are a little taller than them, and they say, how could we ever beat them? God has sent us here to die. Meanwhile, God is thinking, I parted the Red Sea. I think I can help you take these people who are taller than you. And so, God tells them they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that unfaithful generation who saw the wonders of God dies out. You know what's sad is even Moses, the great leader, lets God down. Uh, He dies very anticlimactically, before he enters the Promised Land. Eventually, forty years later, a man named Joseph, or excuse me, Joshua, takes over, and Joshua takes now a new generation of people into the land that God has promised. The Book of Joshua describes the military conquest of the land, and what God has done is He's judged the people who live there, uh, particularly for uh, an evil of child sacrifice that's important later Uh, god gives the land to israel he fulfills his promise as he always does and the book of joshua is actually one of the most positive books in the old testament but that generation the generation of of joshua which takes over the land makes a very big mistake and they do not not pass on their faith in god to the next generation And so what you end up with is a new generation during the time of what the Bible calls the judges. I read this passage a couple of weeks ago, and it's an overview of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So all of God's people are in the land, but there's no king, there's no authority, there's no standard for right and wrong, and it's an absolutely chaotic time. The people who are now in the land are not a unified nation. And during that time, all of these disasters keep befalling Israel. And what God does is he graciously raises defenders to protect them. Uh, these were the judges. They were often military rulers that God would use to save his people. And there's a, there's a cycle that happens in the book of Judges. Uh, the first part of the cycle is that the people would get in a big mess. The second part of the cycle is that God would raise a judge to get them out of that mess. The third part of the cycle is that those people would then take God for granted once they were out of that mess. And then the cycle would repeat itself. And it happens 15 times. There are 15 judges, men and women, during that time who rescue Israel. Well, the final judge is a man whose name was Samuel. And what Samuel does is he transitions the people from the rule of the judges into becoming a unified nation under a king. And the first king for this unified nation is a man whose name was Saul. Now Saul uh, starts great, but he fizzles quickly. He's a very tragic character. Uh, Saul, we're told, was a good-looking guy. He was a head taller than anybody else. He was the sort of man who looked like a king, a very presidential, but he had a bad heart. And so God, over time, replaced him with another man, and that man's name was David. Now, David, we're told, started his life as a shepherd boy. We're also told that he was a man who was after God's own heart. Uh, Towards the beginning of of next year, just as an aside, we're going to be looking at some snapshots together in our community groups of the life of David, and we'll really get to see how he was uh, a man who was after God's own heart. And hopefully we can take some of those lessons and and apply them to ourselves together. But in so many ways, um, David was not only a man who was after God's own heart, but he, he reflected that too. Uh, David was very tender-hearted and compassionate. Uh, David had kind of a a moral backbone to him, and he was courageous, and he had kind of this resilient humility. Uh, David had a, a kind of innocence that when you read the Bible, it is so refreshing. And you may remember that he's the one who, as a young boy, he defeats Goliath, the enemy that everyone else is afraid to face. Uh, David is abused by the former King Saul, who's almost mentally ill. And yet, even though David is so horribly mistreated by him, he refuses to take revenge, and he leads with justice. David was a first-rate king. And he is truly the high point of the Old Testament. And to David, God makes another covenant, another promise, he says, that cannot be broken. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And God says to David, I'm going to give one of your descendants an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. Neither his throne nor his kingdom will ever come to an end. And David rules. And yet during his reign, David betrays God as well. Uh, David sleeps with a married woman named Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. He kills her husband, he has him murdered, and he covers up that truth for at least a year. And David, after that happens, doesn't really seem to recover. Uh, It impacts his leadership, it impacts his, his parenting. In fact, it leads to one of his own sons trying unsuccessfully to steal the kingdom from him. Even David's life, in some ways, was a failure. Now David eventually dies. He has a son whose name is Solomon. And Solomon begins to rule the kingdom now with great promise. In fact, so much promise that God comes to Solomon and he says to him, you can have anything you want. Tell me what it is. I will give you any gift that you desire. And Solomon, of course, asks for wisdom and becomes a just and shrewd ruler. And not only that, he becomes the richest man ever to live In history, Uh, Solomon builds for God a great temple with his riches. It is magnificent and spectacular. When you looked at this temple, you were stunned. However, Solomon's own house, tellingly, was even more spectacular. Uh, Solomon was ensnared by wealth and by pride and especially by women. Uh, Solomon was probably addicted to sex. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And Solomon's heart turned away from God. Now, on the death of, uh, upon the death of Solomon, we're told, Solomon's son, a man named Rehoboam, takes over the kingdom. And unfortunately, Rehoboam does not inherit Solomon's wisdom. And he listens to some very bad advice from his uh, military advisors and that leads to a rebellion in the kingdom. Uh, the nation splits, okay? And, and what you have is you have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin who stayed together in the south. They were, they were ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The capital city is Jerusalem. But the ten other tribes in the north all decided to break away and elect a new king, And the capital there was a place called Samaria. And so now what you have is you've got two nations and two kings, and sometimes they're at war with each other. And in the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, what happened over time is that there were 19 kings who ruled. Uh, They ruled over 210 years. Uh, The average ruling of any king was 11 years. And every single one of these kings were bad. Uh, some of them were worse than others, but every one of these kings did not worship God. They worshiped idols. And the worst of these kings worshiped a particularly bad uh, god, a fertility god named Baal. And in that religion, the people uh, committed acts of prostitution and child sacrifice, the same things that God had judged the other nations for. Now God sends prophets, which were spokespeople and teachers who declared God's truth, and what they did is they warned of the dangers of disobeying God, but reminded them of God's commitment to them no matter what. And the northern kingdom began to grow weaker and weaker, both spiritually and militarily. And Assyria, A very wicked nation grew stronger and stronger and eventually, after 210 years, conquered Israel. The cities were captured, many people were killed, and the rest were deported to Assyria. And God used Assyria to judge Israel in the same way that he had used Israel to judge those other nations. He's a fair God and the northern kingdom ends in tragedy. The southern kingdom called Judah. It's really Judah and Benjamin, but they called it Judah. Uh, The southern kingdom started with Rehoboam, had had 19 kings that followed him, 20 in total, and they lasted longer than the northern kingdom, 340 years. Uh, There were eight kings out of the 20 in the southern kingdom who served God. Most of them did not. Most of them worshipped idols. At that time, there were some bad kings who were partly good, and there were some good kings who were partly bad, but overall, they were mostly bad. And God sent his prophets to speak to them too, and most of the time, they didn't listen. And finally, God used another nation, the Babylonians, to judge their sin. Now the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom in waves, and they destroyed Jerusalem. And part of that destruction meant uh, destroying that magnificent temple that Solomon had built. So sad for the people to watch that. And the Babylonians uh, exiled the, most of the people of Jerusalem to Babylon. And the books of Ezekiel and Daniel and, and Esther describe That time and tell us what took place in captivity. But when they were in Babylon, the people of the southern kingdom, uh, something incredible happened to them at that place for the first time. And that's this they gave up their idols. In captivity in Babylon, they finally decided we worship God. And after 70 years in captivity, they were allowed to come home to Jerusalem. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe their return and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And finally, towards the close of the Old Testament, there is this incredibly poignant, memorable moment in this ruined city of Jerusalem. Uh, The the people gather together and they rebuild the temple that has been destroyed, but it's far, far, far less grand than the one that Solomon had built. And the young people, as this temple is dedicated, who, who never saw Solomon's temple, they were born in Babylon, they are celebrating with joy and laughter. We're free. We have a temple. We can worship God. But the older people, the the ones who had seen the majesty and the splendor of Solomon's temple were told that they weren't laughing, they were weeping because they knew all that had been lost. And that's the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament is a story of loss. Now, there's so much more that I could say about the Old Testament. We could talk about God's covenants and how he kept them. We could talk about his mercy and power. There's so many interesting lives that I passed over and skipped by. There's prophecies that are made in the Old Testament that God fulfills. But that's the basic plot. Uh, I, I read someone who said this about the Old Testament. They said the Old Testament closes with a sad, dreary clunk. And you know, in in many ways, that is absolutely true. The Old Testament is a story of incredible love and a profound betrayal. And it is an enormously sad commentary on the human heart. I mean, the best guy, the very best guy, David, is an adulterer and a murderer and a liar. And if that's true, it leaves you thinking, if all of these people who experience God in such powerful ways could not follow him, what possibility is there for me? If human hearts are really so hard, what hope is there for any of us? But then comes the daring plan. Let me read this to you. This is from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. This is God talking to his people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. One of my uh, favorite movies a lot of people hate this movie, but I, I I love this movie. It's castaway. Good. There's one other person who likes it besides me. Uh, it's a story of a man named uh, Tom Hanks and and he's an incredibly hurried, busy man. Uh, he's engaged to be married to a woman that he loves, but his life is is just frantic. He's very important. he's Uh, very high up in a a certain company and um, his plane crashes in the ocean and he's uh, stranded on a a deserted island. And on this island, this man who's addicted to time uh, almost goes crazy because time has no meaning or value to him there. And what's very interesting about the movie, uh, his time on the island, is that there's no music at all in the background. The only thing you hear for an hour and a half of the movie is just the, the relentless sound of these waves. And you have this sense that Tom Hanks is, is just lost in the waves. They just keep on coming. And, and his character during this time uh, almost goes crazy. He starts talking to a volleyball. You might remember that part. Wilson! <laughs> well, Tom Hanks is, is rescued, and he, he comes home. And when he arrives back home, he's in shock. And he can't sleep on a bed anymore. He sleeps on the floor. And he realizes that uh, four years has gone by and uh, everything that he has is lost. And his fiance, the the person that he loved so much and who kind of kept him going his whole time on the island, she's married another man and she has children and that relationship is over and his life is a total disaster. The movie is a tragedy. Uh, Tom Tom Hanks returns, and he's a he's a broken man. The final scene in the movie, some of you might remember this, is amazing. Uh, Tom Hanks is in Texas, and he's in the middle of nowhere. It's just farmland all around him, and he's standing at a at a crossroads on these dirt roads with just nothing around. It's like the ocean. And he's at a crossroads because that's where his life is. His life is at a a crossroads, and he has no place to go and nothing to do. And the sound of the wind blowing through these fields sounds just like the sound of those waves that he experienced all that time on that island. And you look at him, and and, and you you just feel like he's lost again, he's got nothing. And the camera at the end of the movie zooms in on his face for one final shot before the whole thing ends. And in his face, you you just see his sorrow. And then the scene, the shot begins to fade out. But at just the last moment, I mean, literally, at just the last second of, of, of this scene, the end of the movie, something happens. And you see For just a split second, Tom Hanks' eyes brighten. And and the scene is still fading. But you start to detect on his face the beginning of a smile. And then the shot ends, the fade completes, and the movie is over. And you know what they've left you with? They've left you with hope. They've left you feeling, I want more. Don't end now. I want more. What happens? And that's how the OT ends. That's the end of the Old Testament. And that's where the New Testament begins. And we're going to pick it up there.